We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church in Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. Now we are in a new sermon series. We wrapped up our sermon series in John's Gospel last week of the I Am Statements of Jesus. And this is a new sermon series in which we're going to be going through the book of Deuteronomy. Now, the first five books of the Bible are commonly referred to as the Pentateuch. And that just comes from the Greek word pentam, which means five, and tuk, which was a, a word that either meant scroll or the case for carrying a number of scrolls. So you put those together, and it just simply means the five books or the five scrolls. Now, Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. Or the fifth book of the Pentateuch. The word Deuteronomy really just simply means second telling or the second giving of the law. Now, the first five books of the Bible are incredibly important and they're foundational to all of Scripture. And they're some of the most important for us to understand if we're going to grasp what the story of the Bible really is. Because... Theological truths and historical revelations that are necessary for us to understand what God is doing throughout the story of the scriptures gets revealed to us in these first five books of the Bible. I'll give you an example. Has everybody in here seen Return of the Jedi? Anybody not seen Return of the Jedi? Not? Okay, well, hopefully I'm not going to ruin anything, but imagine that you saw Return of the Jedi first. Before seeing Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. And so you go into this movie and you have a really exciting time. You enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. But you're left with a bunch of questions. Because you don't understand who these characters are. and How they're related to one another. And you miss out on some of the key themes of the movie. Think about it. If you saw Return of the Jedi before Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. You really wouldn't understand the context and backstories of Luke Skywalker. Han Solo. Uh, Princess Leia, Darth Vader, Yoda, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You wouldn't understand the theme of why, why are the rebels fighting against the Empire? Why is it that there's this thing called the Force? And what is the Force? You would miss out on all of those themes if you watched Empire Strikes Back or Return of the Jedi before watching Star Wars. Well, we want to understand the story of the Bible in its proper context. And to do that, then we have to understand Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus... Numbers and Deuteronomy. These five books contain for us important theological truths. Like they reveal to us about the creation of the universe. That creation story places an emphasis on the creation of human beings. We're told that they're created in the image of God. We're also shown how sin entered into human history and the judgment and the chaos that followed. We see the origin of the nation of Israel and we see its covenant relationship to Yahweh. So to put Deuteronomy in context, we have to put it in the context of the Pentateuch. And we have to put that in the context of the story of the Bible. Now Deuteronomy, one way to think about it is it's just one long sermon. But it isn't any sermon. Some have called it the greatest sermon in all of the Bible. It's the final sermon that Moses delivers to the covenant people of Israel before they enter into the promised land. So you can think of it like this. How many of you have seen the movie Hoosiers? Right, it's the greatest, my, one of my favorite sports movies. I wouldn't say it's the greatest sports movie of all time, but it's way up there. In the story of Hoosiers, Coach Norman Dale is the basketball coach of a little Indiana high school called Hickory. And he takes this ragtag bunch of basketball players to the state championship. 
And before they go out and play this really large high school defending champ basketball team, he speaks to his team in the locker room. He gives them this inspirational speech to motivate them to go out and to do their absolute best. Well, Moses is doing something similar. You can summarize the theme of Deuteronomy, this sermon like this. God was faithful and gracious in the past. God is faithful and gracious in the present. And God will be faithful and gracious in the future. That's the theme of Deuteronomy. So if you would turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 1. You can find it in your Bible, I think on 125 or page 145, depending on which version of the Pew Bible you might be using. As you're turning there, let me invite you to stand as we read Deuteronomy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. And skipping down to verse 8. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to give to them and to their offspring after them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me invite you to be seated. This is a little bit unusual in terms of preaching in that typically we have a practice of expositional preaching in which we look at text and we dig specifically into that text. But this morning we're going to do something different. We're going to take this text as kind of a jumping off point and we're going to do like a 30,000 foot overview of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus and Number to get us to this particular point. So we're going to cover a lot of ground and we're going to cover a lot of material and we're going to skip over big chunks of these first four books of the Bible. But we're going to put everything hopefully in a context so that you see that there are some consistent themes and threads that run from the very beginning all the way through Deuteronomy and all the way through the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation. So let's look at Genesis. You can turn to Genesis chapter one if you'd like to follow along with me. Genesis literally just means beginning. The book of Genesis is divided into two parts. You have the first 11 chapters which deal with the primeval world. And then you have chapters 12 through 50 which focus in on one man, Abraham, and his family and the covenant promises that God makes to him and then God's faithfulness through the course of their lives. First, remember that the Old Testament, and this is important, is real history. Okay? Sometimes we think of the Bible in terms where people are kind of one-dimensional characters and they don't face the same kind of challenges that we do, but these are men and women who love their families, who are trying to make sense of what God is revealing to them, trying to be obedient in a world that's pulling at them and pushing from all different directions. So these aren't just simply myths or fables or stories that we can look at and assume that they're not true, but these are real people walking by faith in covenant relationship with a living and real God. So how does Genesis begin? It begins like this, in the beginning. And Genesis chapter 1 shows how God created the universe. We talk about this as ex nihilo creation. God speaks and things come into existence. God says, let there be light. And the Bible says, there was light. But then as you see what happens in this creation, God takes chaos and he takes darkness and he brings forth light and he brings forth order. And he shapes and fashions these into beauty and to goodness. And he creates a place where human beings can flourish, or Adams. And that's where we get the word Adam. Okay? So he creates this world, and specifically this garden, where human beings can flourish. Now we're told, down in verse 27 of chapter 1, 
that human beings were created in the image of God. Now, this is going to become important later on in the story. So the Garden of Eden becomes this place where God's presence is with his people. His abundant blessings was on them and they lived in perfect fellowship. And the goal of this is that God's glory would be magnified and increased over all the people. So he gives to them this command in verse 28. He tells them to be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So God has provided for Adam and Eve in abundant generosity this wonderfully rich and abundant garden for them to enjoy. But he's also defined for them what is good and what is evil. So Adam and Eve are presented with this choice. Will they follow God? Will they trust him to be the source of life? Will they trust him to be the source of definition for what's good and what's evil? Or will they seek their own independence? Will they choose to go off on their own and try to define what good and evil is for themselves? Will they seek autonomy rather than a dependent relationship upon God? And this becomes the main question and becomes one of the defining verses in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses says to the nation of Israel, he's speaking the words of God. And God says to his people, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. The choice to trust and to follow and obey or the choice to seek out our own autonomy and experience the death and the chaos that comes from sin. We know Adam and Eve turn away from God. They embrace death and evil. They reject the one who is the source of life, and this fact is represented in the garden by the tree of life that is there. Instead, they choose to rebel. Given this choice, they choose evil and death. But they don't do it just independently. The serpent appears in the story. He comes to Eve in chapter 3, and he says to her, You will not die. You eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he goes on, he says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice the way that he tempts and deceives them. That you will be like God. Your eyes will be open. But do you remember what verse 27 in chapter 1 tells us? They'd already been created in the image of God. They were already like God in the way that they were supposed to be. In the sense that they were a reflection of God's character. They were representatives of him in creation. They were ruling and subduing. They were continuing the work of creation by tapping into the beauty and the resources that God had provided so that creation would become this beautiful and orderly place where flourishing would occur. But instead, they rebel. Sin enters, death, chaos comes into the world. The very thing that God promises them, we see immediately. It's not the physical, they ate of the fruit of the tree and they just killed over dead, but death enters in. It's the death of fellowship. It's the death of intimacy between husband and wife. It's the death of shalom. We said Eden was this place of perfect fellowship, and the goal was for God's glory to be magnified over all people. But now, after the fall, God's blessing is still present in the garden, but his judgment also shows up. Blessing and judgment now come through Adam and Eve, and instead of perfect fellowship, what we see is chaos and rebellion. Relationship die. Adam and Eve immediately turn on one another. They experience shame for the first time. They recognize that they're vulnerable. And so what do they do? They try to hide from one another. They clothe their nakedness. But then they also turn because they recognize they've been alienated from God. They hide from God. 
where God's presence was a sweet thing to be anticipated and to experience, now it creates fear and shame, and they hide. And we've been doing the exact same thing ever since. But God refuses to let them hide from him. He won't allow them to remain in this state. And so what we see becomes the theme of the whole story of the Bible. God is the one who comes to rescue a rebellious people. He's the one that takes the first step and he calls them, where are you? And he invites them to come out of hiding. And this becomes the theme of the whole of Scripture. God comes to rescue a rebellious people. He speaks first to the serpent in chapter 3, verse 14. We have what is called the Proto-Evangelion. It's the first time the gospel is presented in the scripture. And he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring ultimately being Jesus. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Speaking of the crucifixion, the death of Christ, which brings the ultimate salvation and deliverance for the people of God. So God comes to this rebellious people, our first parents, Adam and Eve, but he doesn't remove the consequences of sin. And this becomes the subject of his conversation with Adam and Eve. And he speaks to them about what their life and what their existence is going to be now that sin has entered into the world. He drives them out of the garden and they're cut off from the presence of God. They're cut off and they're driven east of Eden. So the next few chapters of Genesis show the downward spiral of humanity. They had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel, and then he's driven away. He builds a city that leads to bloodshed and violence. And that becomes the norm of human existence rather than the exception. Everywhere humans gather in a civilization, bloodshed and violence follow. Chapter 6 through 9 sees this evil increase so that God judges the world with a flood. And he chooses to save one man in his favor, who chapter 6, verse 8 says, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We know that man as Noah. So after the flood, we see Noah, and he becomes the new Adam. You can see this in the story. He becomes, in his family, a new start, a new opportunity for humanity. What do I mean? If you look at me, look with me, you'll see that... God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them in verse 9, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You've heard that before, right? That was the same command that he gave to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. So God seems to be hitting the reset button, and he's giving Noah and his family the opportunity to fulfill what Adam and Eve were supposed to in the garden. The problem is they just don't do any better. In verse 20, Noah becomes a man or a soil, becomes a man of the soil, or in other words, he becomes a gardener. He becomes the kind of man who grows a vineyard and his vineyard becomes fruitful and he takes the fruit of that vineyard and he makes a wine and he gets drunk on it. And he's passed out drunk, we would call that drunk as a skunk in Mississippi, or drunk as Cooter Brown, maybe you ever heard that one. He's passed out drunk, naked, and one of his sons comes and finds him and he dishonors his father. And he's cursed. And so what we see is the first Adam fell in the garden. The second Adam fells in the garden. And things continue downhill and ultimately culminate with the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. Technology advances. People come up with the idea to make bricks and use those bricks to build buildings. Those buildings become cities. And they become a place where all of sinful, rebellious humanity begin to grab. And they say to themselves in chapter 11, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And this is why they say they're motivated by something. They say, because we want to make a name for ourselves. 
We want the glory. That's what they're saying. And the interesting, uh, Moses, as he writes about this, you know, they're trying to build this tower to heaven, and it's so insignificant. Their, their, their prime accomplishment to make a name for themselves is so insignificant that God has to come down from heaven in order to see what it is they're doing. And it's just talking about the impotence of you and I to live or to create anything apart from the grace and the faithfulness of God in our lives. And so they want to make a name for themselves. And God, in an act of judgment and mercy, comes down and confuses their language and they're scattered across the face of the earth. And this ends that first section of Genesis 1 through 11. Now, there's some themes that appear. One, God gives human beings the choice between life and death. We saw that Adam and Eve in the garden. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 30. This day I present before you uh, what's life and good within evil and death. But we always choose, we gravitate to the lowest common denominator of evil and wicked and violence. Another thing that we see is that God created a world that was good and we broke it with our sin and rebellion. And we continue to contribute to the brokenness with our relationships, with our selfishness, with our deceit. We contribute to conflict and death as we decide for ourselves, individually but also as societies, what's good and what's right. But there's hope. In the story of the Bible, chapter 12, we see God has not given up his plan to come and save a rebellious people. So Genesis takes a turn and begins to focus now on God's covenant faithfulness to one man named Abram and his family. In chapter 12, God calls Abram. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so the story of Genesis 12 through 50 becomes the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Jacob's sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Now a couple of things to notice. Again, we see the command that God will make him a mighty nation. It's the fulfillment of this be fruitful and multiply commission that he gave Adam and Eve and Noah. But notice what God says. God says, I will make you a mighty nation. God is the one that will be the author and the creator of this incredible covenant people. He says, I will multiply you. And we know that this is significant because at the time, Abraham and Sarah have no children. They have no children. And the first step to become a mighty nation is you at least got to have one other person as an offspring. Or you got to be really good at gathering other people to come in and be a part of your tribe. It's just the two of them. And yet God says, leave the land and go to the place I'm going to show you. And I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you'll become a mighty people. But notice what also he says. Babylon wanted to make their name great. And now God says, I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you'll be a blessing and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham becomes the starting point of God's plan to rescue all of rebellious humanity. And his plan is to make him a mighty nation, a covenant people, so that through him the glory of God might be made known to the nations and to the whole world. So this is the repeated story. God's people fail and God is faithful. God's people fail and God shows up to rescue them. Abraham, he lies two different occasions about his wife. She was a very attractive woman. They go down to Egypt and he says, look, they're going to want you for their wife. So why don't you just tell them that you're my sister? And sure enough, they go into Egypt and Pharaoh says, you know what, I want her. And Pharaohs usually get what they want. And so he brings Sarah to him. And then God in his grace sends a plague on Pharaoh. 
So rather than Abraham being the blessing to the nations that he was supposed to be, he actually becomes the source of a curse to Pharaoh. But because God is gracious, he reveals this to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh gives Sarah back, Sarah back to Abraham, and they continue on in their journey. See, Abraham and Sarah are not people who live on this plane up here where they always do what's right. They doubt the plan of God a lot of times. God said, I'm going to make you a mighty nation, but they have no children. And they recognize that in order to have a mighty nation, you've got to have some children. And so Sarah comes up with this idea. The only way we're going to get children is we're not going to have it between you and me. Why don't you have my slave, my servant girl? And all of a sudden, that creates a division in the family. It creates all kinds of problems for the people of God. But they thought they could jumpstart the plan of God. But God, because he is faithful and because he is gracious, finally gives them a biological son. And his name is Isaac. And in Genesis chapter 22, we see that Isaac becomes a picture and we see the echoes of Jesus in the life of this beloved son. How? Well, Isaac was the firstborn and his parents adored him. He was the center of their universe. Isaac was a beloved son in the same way that Jesus is the beloved son of the father. Isaac, when his father is instructed to offer him as a sacrifice, is the one who carries the wood on his back. Jesus is the one who carries the cross to Golgotha for his execution. Both are willing to trust and be obedient to the fathers. And so they're a model of faith and obedience. Isaac grows up. We know that God provides a sacrifice or a substitute. So Isaac grows up. He has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Again, there's all kinds of discord in the family, and this only continues. It's not the Hackley family that we would all imagine. Jacob deceives and tricks his brother Esau. He tricks him out of his birthright over a bowl of stew, and then he tricks his aged and blind father out of the blessing that should have gone to his brother. And so Jacob has to leave because his brother wants to kill him. So Jacob goes off where he finally meets his match and his uncle Laban. Uncle Laban tricks him out of significant number of years of hard labor in order for him to marry his daughters. Jacob wrestles with God on the journey home and his name is changed and he becomes Israel. He has somewhat of a reconciliation with Esau. And then the story continues with his sons. The only problem is because he has multiple wives and there's one wife that he really adores and cares about. He's a man who plays favorites. And he plays favorites with his kids. And his kids recognize that Joseph is the one that he really loves. And this makes him angry and jealous. It will make any other brother or sister angry and jealous. And so they come up with a plan. Well, let's kill Joseph. But instead of deciding to kill him, they say, well, let's make some money off of him and sell him into slavery. So they sell their brother into slavery. And Joseph ultimately ends up in Egypt. And through many years in horrific circumstances, being wrongfully imprisoned, Joseph becomes the second most important man in all of Egypt. There's a famine. And Pharaoh invites Jacob or Israel, Joseph's father, and all of his family, which by now has grown to about 70 people, to come and to be VIP guests in Egypt. So Pharaoh provides. Jacob dies. And Joseph's brothers are kind of waiting for the hammer to fall and for Joseph to take his revenge. And Genesis ends this way. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so the story of God's people in Egypt comes to an end in Genesis. And we move to the second book of the Pentateuch, the book of Exodus. It again is divided into two sections, chapter one through 18 and chapters 19 through 40. Four hundred years go by. OK, 
Think about that. More time passes in between Genesis and Exodus than the United States has been a nation. Like when you put it in that context, a long time goes by. Do you remember the command given to Adam and Eve in the garden? Be fruitful and multiply. When you read in verse 7 of chapter 1 in Exodus, this is what Moses writes for us. But the people of Israel were fruitful and they increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And what we see is that God is sovereign and his purposes will be accomplished to the nation of Israel. And it doesn't matter what things look like from the outside. 400 years go by and a Pharaoh rises up and it just says, and he did not know Joseph. And that's just code word for things are about to get really bad for the nation of Israel. Pharaoh sees the Israelites and he sees that they've been fruitful and they've multiplied and they're a threat to his rule. So he attempts to crush them by the ordering of all Hebrew male babies being drowned in the Nile River. Pharaoh's order becomes the vehicle for God's deliverance. Do you remember Moses' mom takes him down to the river and she places him in this kind of little homemade boat basket? And he actually floats right to, Moses, I mean, right to Pharaoh's family where he is raised and trained and educated and instructed in the family of Pharaoh. Another story is that Moses is driven out and he's tending sheep on the backside of a mountain when God appears to him in a burning bush. And he says, Moses, I want you to set my people free. And this is where we, we find out the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And so Moses goes back to Egypt and he marches into Pharaoh. And he says, God says, let my people go so that they might not just go live lives of freedom and independence, so they might go and serve me. So he's leading his people out of bondage and into the service of God. But Pharaoh doesn't want to let this great workforce go. And so he refuses. And so God sends these plagues. And we read that there's five plagues that Pharaoh experiences. And after each one, Pharaoh hardens his heart. He chooses to deny what God is asking and commanding of him. Then the plagues begin to ramp up. With the ultimate plague being the death of the firstborn son in every family. But God makes a way of escape. In the Passover lamb. In every household, if an unblemished lamb was sacrificed and the blood was uh, painted on the door, then the, lamb, then the angel would pass over that house. Because if someone had already died, there was a substitute. The lamb was the sacrifice in the place of the firstborn son. Finally, Pharaoh relents and he lets God's people go. But he decides, you know what, I'm going to give chase. And God delivers his people at the Red Sea. Chapters 16 through 18 become the time of wilderness wandering. The people complain, but yet God is gracious and faithful. He provides food and water in the wilderness. But Israel's heart is a lot like Pharaoh's and that it grows hard. After experiencing this great deliverance and they're walking around, God's providing them food, manna from heaven, water. They say, you know what? Why did you lead us out here to the desert just to have us die? We'd rather go back to Egypt. Things were so much better in Egypt because their hearts are hard. And so the second half of Exodus begins with Moses leading Israel to Mount Sinai, where God invites Israel to enter into this covenant relationship. And they eagerly agree. Here we see the continuation of the covenant that God made to Abraham to bless him, to make him a mighty nation so that all the families of the earth might be blessed through him. God tells them if they live according to God's law, they will become a people set apart and the glory of God will be revealed to the world. 
The basic terms of this covenant become the Ten Commandments that you and I know. There are other laws that follow that concern the worship, uh, concern the relationships, uh, societal interactions, justice, what righteousness looks like, how they're to live with one another. He gives instruction about the tabernacle in seven different chapters. And the tabernacle becomes this important feature of the worship of Israel. In the garden, remember what was lost was access to the presence of God. Now the tabernacle means that God's presence is being realized in the midst of his covenant people. That's why there's so much symbolism in the tabernacle that refers back to the Garden of Eden. It's a reminder of what was lost and what will ultimately be regained at some point in the future. But what happens? Moses is on the mountain. God's giving all these instructions. And people are like, yes, we'll, we'll live in this covenant relationship. And they immediately break the covenant. And they say to Aaron, we're tired of waiting. We want you to make us a god that we can worship. So they gather up all their jewelry. They mount it down. They make a golden calf. They're worshiping it. And God responds in anger. But what we see is that the character of God is revealed. As he passed before Moses, this is what he said. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping this steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And so we just see this tension. There's a holy God and a sinful people. And how do those two things exist together? God says, I am a merciful and gracious God. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in love, but I know by no means clear the guilty. So this tension arises. How will God deal with the evil and the rebellion and the sin of Israel? So God continues to have Moses build the tabernacle, but Moses can't enter in because of the issue of God's holiness, his goodness, his justice, and his righteousness cannot tolerate the presence of sin at all. So Leviticus provides us with the answer to this problem. We can't enter into the presence of a holy God because you and I, the nation of Israel, are sinful people. And so we see in the opening verse of Leviticus 1, the Lord called Moses, remember, the tent is where the presence of God dwells. He called to him from the tent of meeting. The implication being Moses is not allowed in. Moses can't go into the tent because God's holiness would consume him and destroy him. So God develops a sacrificial system. There are rituals like grain and fellowship offering. And these were ways for the people to say thank you to God for all that he's provided. But there were also these offerings like the burnt and the purification offerings that were a way to say, I'm sorry, I'm repenting of my sin. So the story of Leviticus discusses the rituals and the role of priests and purity laws in the nation of Israel. What makes things clean and unclean. And then right in the middle of the book of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. The high priest would take two goats. One becomes a purification offering and the other becomes the scapegoat, in which the priest confesses the sins of the nation and symbolically places them on the goat. And then the goat is driven out into the wilderness. And the idea of the picture here is that this communicates God's desire to remove sin and all of its consequences from the presence of his people so that it might be driven out from their midst. So that's what Leviticus leads us to. And so we come to the book of Numbers and we see that this sacrificial system works because Numbers opens up and we see the Lord again speaking to Moses in the wilderness. But this time he's in the tent of meeting. The people of God now have access to the presence of God because the sacrificial system has worked. 
So the book of Numbers, Israel is wrapping up their year stay at Mount Sinai. There's a census, and that's where the name Numbers comes from because the people are counted. And Moses is about to lead them out to the promised land. The same promised land that was given to Abraham in Genesis. Structures of tribes are arranged in a camp, and they're told when you camp, you're supposed to be this way. The tabernacle's in the center, the priests and the Levites around that, and then the twelve tribes of Israel gather around that way with the head being Judah. And the idea is that they're emphasizing the presence of God being the central feature of the life and the experience of the nation of Israel. The purity laws that get discussed again, the cloud which represents the presence of God lifts, the people begin to move. And as they're moving, again, they start to complain. They complain that they're hungry. They complain that they're thirsty. Moses, his brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, they join in on the complaining. And God responds. They're led finally to the wilderness of Paran. And there in the wilderness, Moses sends out 12 spies to go and to check out what lies ahead in the promised land, Canaan. Ten of the spies come back and say, look, there's no way that we're ever going to do this. And two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, come back and say, God will deliver us. God will save us. We need to move forward and go forth. But the people hear the voice of the ten spies. They get riled up in fear and they start to have a mutiny on their hands. And so God again responds in judgment. And he gives what's interesting. His judgment is to give the people exactly what they want. They're afraid to go into the promised land. So he says, you're not going then. Okay? You'll just stay here in the wilderness. And the next generation, your children, they'll be the ones who get to go in. So he's still faithful. But yet he's being, he's being holy and righteous and dealing with their rebellion. But he's also being merciful and being faithful to the promises that he's made. There's more rebellion. It continues to go downhill. Chapter 20, Israel again is complaining about being thirsty. And God tells Moses, I want you to speak to this rock and how this rock will flow water. Well, Moses, he's had it. I mean, like dealing with difficult people, sometimes you just snap. And so instead of speaking to the rock, he kind of takes the place of God and he strikes the rock with his staff. And he's like, you rebellious people, do we have to call water out of this rock? And in doing so, he rebels against what God had told him. And he suffers the same punishment that the nation of Israel experiences. And he's not allowed to go in the promised land. Verse 21, more rebellion. And so God judges the people in a very weird way. He sends poisonous snakes and the people that are bit by the snakes. The only way that they're saved and delivered is this bronze statue of a snake is carved and put on a pole. And God says, if you look to the snake, then you'll be healed. And it's this idea that through God's judgment, also God is merciful. And so the people are saved. But they continue on, and the king of Moab, he sees this great people marching, and he calls for this pagan kind of witch doctor, Balaam, to curse the nation of Israel. And Balaam tries, but God prevents him. And that's what he says. He's like, I can't curse someone who God hasn't cursed. I can only speak blessings about them. And it's the echo of the first promise that God made to Abraham. I will bless you. And I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you. And Balaam says, I can't. I mean, I'd love to take your money. I'd love to curse them. But I can only speak blessings about these people. And then he gives him this vision of a king who will one day bring justice to all nations. And you and I know that to be Jesus. So God has been faithful in the past, Moses said. Faithful in the present. And he's going to be faithful and gracious in the future. So this morning, let me ask you a question. Where are you looking for life and goodness? 
See, every single decision you and I make is the same decision that Adam and Eve and everybody else down the line had. Are we going to choose what God has put before us, life and goodness or evil and death? Jesus is the author and the source of life. And he's inviting you and me to come and to experience that reality here and now. Let's pray.